Sandy, it is my great honour to present you with BAFTA's highest honour, the BAFTA Fellowship. I am Susie Menkes, and you are listening to my podcast, Creative Conversations. As a journalist reporting on the global fashion industry, I want to take you backstage and give you an insight into my world. Listen to my exclusive conversations with creatives, industry leaders, and those whose voices have some of the greatest impact. I think you might find it interesting and maybe intriguing. Sandy Powell, the multi-award-winning costume designer, is celebrating another win. She is the first costume designer to be awarded the BAFTA Fellowship for her outstanding and exceptional contribution to film. Powell is famous for the depth and imagination of her designs, from films such as Shakespeare in Love, for which she won an Oscar, Mary Poppins Returns, and Gangs of New York, which was directed by Martin Scorsese, an important collaborator. Powell's favoured influence was with the late filmmaker Derek Jarman, who not only started her career in films, he also became her mentor and close friend after he hired her to work on his film Caravaggio. And that is just the beginning. Let's hear how Sandy Powell balances reality and visual magic. It was so extraordinary watching you win the BAFTA Fellowship Award. I felt a glow. I felt proud for you, even though I barely know you. And um, I can't imagine what you must have felt like. Tell me how it was. Oh, goodness. It was the actual event was overwhelming. You know, the moment I got onto the stage and, and actually could see everybody standing, that was terrifying. It was a standing ovation. Oh my goodness, now what am I going to do? Um, but in actual fact, I was told about the fellowship a few months earlier. In about, I mean, November, I believe, I got a letter from the head of BAFTA asking if I would accept the fellowship. And that was extraordinary. I was like, oh my goodness. Um, and then, of course, I said yes, and then was terrified. And was asked to keep it quiet. I had to sort of not really tell anybody because they wanted to announce it in February, sort of shortly after they uh, announced the nominations. It was a huge honour, but I mean, the biggest, the biggest honour really was the fact that I'm the first costume designer. So once I was told about it, the first thing I did was look up online all the previous recipients. And it started in 1971 was the first one. And the first person was Alfred Hitchcock. And then there are names in there like Laurence Olivier. Oh, wow you know, Ridley Scott, Martin Scorsese. I mean, absolutely sort of phenomenal people. But I also counted them up and it was something like 30-something actors, 20-something directors, over, over 52 years. And all directors and actors, a handful of producers, just two cinematographers, two editors and one composer. That was the sum total of people who weren't actors or directors. So, so what do you think is happening now that costume designers are finally getting more recognition? Can we say that your role is no longer regarded as a bunch of clothes going out on the runway? You know what, I'm sure there's an awful lot of people who still think it is that. A lot of people think that the costume designer's job is just putting clothes on people and making them look nice. And it's not. I mean, it, obviously, we're putting clothes on people, yes. 
but it's not about showing off clothes. It's not about the clothes, it's about the characters. And that really is the difference between, I mean, you're talking about clothes on a runway, as in fashion, and costume design is about telling stories and creating characters. Um, but within the film industry itself, we're still pretty far down in the pecking order. I, I think that is changing gradually, but we are considered less important than production designers. But I mean, you yourself are very high up in your area. You have won so many awards already for films. Um, I've got them here, a few of them, and you can fill in all the rest. And so there was Orlando in 1992, that was wonderful. The Crying Game, um, Interview with the Vampire, Gangs of New York, <laughs> Shakespeare in Love, Cinderella, Mary Poppins Returns, and then the um, latest film, Living, that's right, isn't it? Yes. Starring Bill Nye. Yeah. So um, that's um, pretty amazing. There's such an enormous number of designs and the variety and the scale of your work is absolutely stunning. Can I ask a simple question? How do you do it all? And especially because you must be obliged to work on different projects at the same time. Actually, I don't work on different projects at the same time. That's almost impossible to do because when you are on a film, it really is 100% of your time. I mean, you don't have time for a private life or family life. You really do have to give all that up and your friends and family have to understand that. So to do two films at the same time, I don't know how you divide your time. Some people do. And I've overlapped a little bit at the end. I might have come to the end of one job and started prepping or thinking about another one. But that is incredibly stressful. There just really aren't the hours in the day to, to give yourself fully to both projects. Sandy, my life's work is in fashion. I know a lot about designing clothes for female bodies but your job is so complex and it's so different because you're a storyteller and your role is to bring characters to life how do you balance reality and visual magic good question and i i don't know what the answer is i don't know how i do it it's what i enjoy doing and it's why i chose costume design over fashion i mean i love fashion you know as, as a child i love fashion as a teenager i love fashion i still love fashion and i look at fashion all of the time, and I actually look at fashion before any film I'm doing, whatever whatever project I'm doing, whatever period it is, I start with fashion. I mean, obviously, firstly, fashion from the period. Mm -hmm. But I also look at contemporary fashion because there is always something inspiring about contemporary fashion. But I think what I enjoy about what I do, it is creating characters. So I'm not necessarily dressing a body, whether it's a female body or a male body, in something that looks gorgeous. I mean, some of the time it does look gorgeous, it's meant to look gorgeous, but sometimes it's not meant to look good. Sometimes it's meant to look like normal people who mostly don't look great, mostly aren't really well-dressed or they wear ill-fitting clothes. So it's that balance, it's working out, is this a person who knows how to dress? Is this a person who likes clothes? Is this a person who doesn't like clothes? Is this a person who's picked up their clothes off the floor at the bottom of the bed? It's making all those kind of decisions that I find really interesting. That was an extraordinary moment when you accepted your BAFTA award in London. You made a list of all the people you work with. Let's listen to your speech and then we'll come back to discuss it. It really is a huge honour to be invited to join such an incredible group of filmmakers who have received this fellowship and an even greater one to be the first costume designer. I am...
I am most grateful for the generosity and guidance I've received throughout my life, from the primary school teacher who first encouraged me to paint, the mentorship and trust I received from Derek Jarman in my early years, to the many brilliant collaborators I've had the great fortune to work with since. One of the most significant things I've learned is the importance of both taking risks and passing on what we know to encourage and inspire future generations of filmmakers. To quote David Bowie, always go a little further into the water than you feel you're capable of going. And when your feet are not quite touching the bottom, you're just about in the right place to do something exciting. And after almost 40 years in this business, I still get nervous at the beginning of every project and I would be worried if I didn't. So, thank you BAFTA. I accept this fellowship on behalf of my community, the supervisors, assistants, coordinators and PAs, the tailors and cutters, the stitchers and buyers, the weavers and knitters, the printers and dyers, the leather workers, shoemakers, milliners, jewelers, the standbys, dressers, fitters and crew, in fact, everyone who makes this work possible, including a person I would not be here without. My very first teacher, she taught me to sew, encouraged and supported every decision I ever made. I know she'll be bursting with pride right now at home watching TV. This is for my mum and mothers everywhere. Thank you. You made it seem like one large family. Is that what it's like on the set or was this a bit of a dream for you? It's what I strive to achieve on every job. I mean, I do have a core group of people who I like to work with all of the time, if they're all available, because sometimes people aren't. And I, for myself, I pick my crew to work well with each other. I try to pick personalities that are going to work together because we are like a family. For that period of time on a film, they're the only people that you see from dawn till dusk. And you live with them and you're working with them and I have to inspire them to work and produce work for me sometimes when they're on their knees with exhaustion. So it has to be a really cohesive group of people to work together. In an ideal world, that spreads over the entire film within all the departments. Obviously, that doesn't always happen. And there are conflicts, there always are. Sometimes that's interesting, sometimes it's, it's you know, destructive. But within my department, I do really try to gather together people that work well together. That's the only way that you can produce good work. And you asked me earlier, how do I do my work? How do I do so much with those people? And that was the point I was making in that speech is that, well, I, I wouldn't be here without those people. And I also wanted to let everybody else know, even the people within the film industry, the kind of skills, all the different skills that are involved in making one costume or one group of costumes. It's not just a cutter and a seamstress. It's people who paint costumes, people who do metal work, people who do leather work. I mean, there's just so many different skills involved. Well, I'm not in the movie business, and um, I tell you how I imagine your life, that you lead it heading from one country to another, that you're going to America, you're coming back again, and um, do you have a makeshift workshop? How do you operate? How do you actually take films all over the world? Well, my workshop moves wherever I am. It doesn't actually move, it's set up wherever I am. So if I'm working on a film based in Pinewood Studios in London, for instance, we take over a massive space, which includes ateliers, like the equivalent of a fashion atelier. I have a, I have a workroom with cutting tables, cutters, you know, teams of people making things. I have an office. I have a huge area where all the costumes are stored. I have another huge area where all the extras costumes are stored, which is thousands and thousands and thousands of costumes. It's a massive space. You can't take that with you anywhere. But So if you do a job in America, you set up there. It's a bit like a travelling circus, I suppose. I mean, not all the people move, but I set up wherever I am. Sometimes you're in a tent. 
Do you know what I mean? It's sometimes it's not, um, you know, gorgeous high-tech buildings. Well, I'll show you how I know nothing by telling you how I imagine it. I imagined for you to make the inspiration for the films that you'd start a bit like they do in, when they're making um, designs for people to wear. So there'd be a mood board and then you'd refine it and pass on from there. Is it anything like that? It is, actually. I mean, what the biggest misconception is I think people think I sit in a lovely office and I, I with, with some paper and some pencils and I draw pictures and I hand them over and then the costumes are made. I actually don't do that. It, it, it rarely starts with a drawing. It does start with mood boards. It starts with the first thing I do is research and that's researching if it's a period and generally I do period films. So you research the period in depth and you're looking at, you know, paintings, if it's pre-photography, photography, anything. And I start gathering images. I gather images of things to do with the period. I gather images that remind me of, of each of the characters. And yes, we, I make mood boards. I make mood boards for everybody to see, all the people working for me mm -hmm. to see, for me to show directors and actors. And that is how we start. Then after that, I tend to go straight into 3D, if you like, and work with the cutters. And I might, I might even start myself with fabric draping onto a stand to get an idea for the shape and the silhouette. So, so you're very much part of it. You're oh, goodness, totally yes. involved. And... Um, it's now understood that people wear on screen things that can influence a, a whole era. It's, I don't know whether I would say it's become nearer to fashion so much, but clothing and costumes seem to send out a message and tells us a lot about the character of the actor or actress. That's a given now, isn't it? I've been asked about this before, whether I think anything that I've done has inspired fashion. I personally can't see it because I think I'm inspired by fashion. I mean, I look at fashion for inspiration. I keep thinking, well, everyone's going to know where that reference came from. Everyone's <laughs> going to recognise that bit of McQueen, that bit of Galliano. I mean, McQueen, I'd say, was, is the most copied, is the most copied designer that there is in the costume, in the costume industry. But obviously fashion designers do look to film as well. I mean, we all, we all look at everybody else. We all artists look at other artists for inspiration, don't they? And especially now, because it's, the world has made it possible and what's been invented it's, to see everything. It's so easy. In fact, it's, it's a bit overwhelming how many images you do get. When, I mean, I used to always start, and I still do, in my own library, with my own books, leafing through books. There's nothing like looking through a book, I think. And and you do that, and you do that at a slow pace, and that's slow enough for you to be thinking as you're doing it. The minute I get online and start looking at images, you sort of go off on weird tangents, which sometimes is great, and you find things you weren't looking for, but you might find things that are completely irrelevant and is a distraction. And sometimes there is so much there that you can have too much information and too much choice, and it, you have to then narrow it right down to the essence of what you're looking for. Um, let's talk about one extraordinary costume design that everybody knows about and remembers, um, and that was for Mary Poppins Returns, just at a time when the new generation would probably have let um, Mary Poppins go, would have disappeared. And those clothes, I thought, were extraordinary, magical, original. How did you set about creating that? spark in the film what was the message you were trying to convey the fantasy sequences so we knew that there was going to be an animated section in the middle of the film rather like the original the supercalifragilistic mm. moment and i looked back I and mean, of course i knew the original film i think it was the very first film i ever saw oh. um you know in 1964 um so i knew it anyway but then looking back on it again as an adult it's quite funny and, and you look at it and the, and the animation is as it is and there was something about how the characters looked. They looked separate. Of course, it was like, you know, not as advanced or sophisticated as, as things are now, the visual effects. And 
Mary Poppins and Dick Van Dyke looked like they were separate from the animation. And I, what I wanted to do with this version was make them look as if they were part of the animation. So I thought, why don't I make them look as if they've been painted in the same way as the animated characters have. That's such an interesting example for me of how dense and how carefully you do these things. It's not just some sort of casual, well, that would look good to put that there. You must have enormous hours of thought and um, practicing in order to get somewhere, yes? Well, well, I mean, that was one of the first ideas I had was like, how are we going to tackle this animated scene in the middle? So what I did very early on, I, I suggested that to the director, Rob Marsh, and I said, how do you feel about if, if I actually make them look like they're 2D as opposed to 3D? They will be 3D, but they'll look like they're 2D. I didn't know whether it was going to work. Um, so then the next thing I had to do was talk to the animators at Disney who had just started sort of um, at themselves sort of experimenting with different styles and I wanted to know what style of, of drawing they were going to be doing so we communicated and then they allowed me to do the costumes first and decide the colour palette and then they worked from that but I was able to choose my own colour palette and work on, on that. It was, it was actually a really exciting collaboration because it was something that I plucked out of nowhere let's do this having no idea whether it would work and we did some we did some tests and some prototypes and on camera they photograph incredibly well now since then what I love um, is that it, this has happened in fashion as well it's particularly Jeremy Scott for Moschino has, has used painting it was two years ago 21 I think it was he did a men's collection with painted suits which I adore and they photograph so brilliantly and they look like cartoon characters and that's exactly what I was trying to do with Mary Poppins. I'm going to take you away from your extraordinary clothes for a moment to ask you about Martin Scorsese. You've worked with so many of his films. Does he actually care himself deeply about the clothes, perhaps more than any other directors, or is it just that you have a good relationship between you and you're both thinking in the same page? Both, actually. That's a yes to both of those questions. He is a person who likes clothes. I mean, he dresses very nicely himself. I mean, he'll come to work every day, like spick and span, you know, that very in, smartly dressed. Yes. I mean, not suits, but just always a crisp shirt. And even if it's a crisp shirt and a pair of jeans and a good pair of shoes, I mean, he is very, very particular about how he, he dresses. But he also knows and understands clothes. I mean, to the extent, and I've told this story before, that when an actor comes onto the set for the first time, wearing the whole costume completed. He might have seen photographs of it, but when he actually sees it in reality, he just comes up to them and he always touches it. He just touches the cloth, he feels it. And there's something really touching about that. He's um, appreciating the textures and the work that's gone into it. You're from London and this is your base, but have you ever found that working in the West Coast of America has been your destiny? Do you find yourself always putting a bit of London in your work or is there now a lot of America? Ooh, that's an interesting question. I am absolutely a Londoner. I was born in London. I still live in London. I love to travel. I love working away. Um, I think Maybe inevitably there's always a bit of London in me. I don't know how that shows. But then if I'm working in America, generally, the film is set in America. So I do have to think in an American way and I have to dress people as Americans if that's what they are. I only work on... The, I've never worked on a film that's shot in LA. We did a little bit of Aviator, I lied. We did three weeks shooting on Aviator in LA. But most of that was shot in Montreal. 
Um, I go to the West Coast purely to use the, um, the costume rental companies and buy fabrics. Fabrics, rental companies, or to meet with actors and do fittings, or to go to premieres, that's about it. I don't actually, I've never really made a film there. I've done a lot on the East Coast and work there. So you have to basically, as a designer or in the film industry as a whole, you have to completely adapt to your surroundings and wherever you are. You know, you have to set up shop, set up home, wherever you are and make that your own. You're giving me all sorts of surprises here about your life and how you do things. Um, but I'd like to go back right to the real beginning, um, because you cut your teeth as a young girl on a Singer sewing machine um, that your mother had bought for you. And of course, your cousin is the award-winning costume designer, Anthony Powell. Actually, the first point to make is that I am not related to Anthony Powell at all. This is oh. hilarious. <laughs> I know, it's in IMDb and Wikipedia. It's completely wrong, and I can't tell you how many times I have tried to tell people we are not related. I knew him. I loved him dearly. We were close friends, but, you know, now we know. Now it's out there. We're not related. <laughs> Going back to the previous part of that question, yes, I learned to sew very young. My mother, you know, I was born in 1960, so I was brought up in the 60s, and at a time when people made their own clothes, and my mum used to make my clothes and my sister's, and I was brought up you know, going to the shops to look through the pattern books, look through the simplicity pattern books, choose a pattern, then choose the fabric, then watch as she cut it out. And I watched and watched and watched and I really wanted to learn how to do it myself. So I actually learned to sew on her old Singer sewing machine. It's fascinating to me that you did learn um, to do these things. I'm not sure how many people are left who are actually their own creators, not just in the mind and the head, but also in the hands. In the late um, 70s at London's um, Central St Martins, you studied an art foundation and then a BA in theatre design. So you understand the importance of education and the pressures on students every day. And what would be your advice to students if they want to enter your world of design? If you went tomorrow and talked to them, what would you say? Well, that's interesting because I did go to Central St Martin's, well, St Martin's first of all, and then Central School of Art. I enjoyed my time at college, but actually I was a pretty bad student. I dropped out. I didn't graduate. <laughs> um, and I think that's because I went and just sort of flung myself into the freedom of being out of out of school and, and being in, in the West End, which I adored. I did enjoy doing theatre design, which was the course I, I studied secondly, and I preferred the costume side of it more than the sets. Then I felt like I wasn't really learning anything. I felt I was, I think I was just a bad student. I, I wasn't really good at being told what to do by teachers. I actually wanted to go out and do it. So what I would say to people now is like really be sure that that's what you want to do and use your time well, use the facilities, because I felt like I wasted my time there. I learned more in the first three weeks out of college than I did in college. I also, one of the first things I say to people who want to do my job is, can you sew? As you say, I'm really surprised when people say no. I say, well, how can, you, how can you tell somebody else what you want? How can you design clothes without knowing how they're constructed, at least? You don't have to be the best sewer or the best cutter or the best costume maker in the world, but you should certainly understand how things are put together if that's the, the field you want to work in. And do you also have these days to um, understand the difference between historical clothing and fashion of today? There seems to be quite a difference these days between the different costumes. A lot is about remaking, isn't it? Taking things from the past, or at least taking things that people imagine are from the past. So historical clothing and fashion, are they entirely separate? 
It depends on the context. Yes, they are. I mean, I don't know. Are you referring to some for the for the trend at the moment to do historical stories on TV, for instance, whereby it's set in a period, but actually the way that it's treated is in a very contemporary manner. So it's like the fashion version of the 19th century. Yeah. That, if it's done well and cleverly, is great. If it's done badly, I think it's lazy and looks horrible. You know, I mean, what can I say without <laughs> getting into trouble? I mean, I think there are some things, I've seen some things recently that I just think look horrible. And I'm not sure whether that's the intention. I'm not sure whether the directors and the producers have come in and said, OK, we want it to look modern and sexy. We don't want all this old fashioned, like period looking costume. We want it to be, you know, I look think great sexy, and sexy. And sexy fashion. and modern would be the way they thought of it. Not modern and sexy. That's true. <laughs> That's true. And sometimes <laughs> it works. Sometimes it's Sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. And I think there's a fine balance. And I think that's down to how good the costume designer is or indeed how, um, intelligent the director is and what, whether they actually do have a vision or whether it's just the question of let's make it appeal to young people and get them in and watch it as opposed to let's create something that is meaningful and looks good. Well, we all of us imagine, we simple people, that um, when you're doing a movie that the money is flowing in in all directions, you can do just what you want. But whose responsibility is it for you to actually work on the budget? Um, financial basics must be something that's second nature to you. But how difficult is it or how are you now so important that you can do just what you like? There is never enough money, even on the biggest budget films, even when you've got, you know, supposedly lots of money, you've, you've usually got a thousand, thousands of costumes to make and there's never enough time. Budget is really really crucial and I am responsible for the budget sometimes I'm responsible for millions of pounds or dollars which is terrifying I work with in my department a supervisor and a coordinator and actually it's the supervisor's job who will work out the budget who'll do the budget with me at the beginning of a film you read the script and then the producers come to you and say well they say here's your budget and you look at it and you go well that's not enough it's never enough they always try it on they always try to give you a lot less than they know you need and then we have to then go back and budget and then it's sort of like a bit of a you know negotiation then it's usually the supervisor's job to actually make sure that the money is spent in the right way but I have to be aware of everything I have to know if we're going over in one area or not another area where to put the money sometimes I do a job where there is so little money that we really are begged borrowing and stealing and I'm using my own clothes or I'm using my own stock of fabric. I collect fabrics and trim as well when I find them. And at the end of every job, anything that's left over that's good, I take away, I keep, and then it comes out onto the next job. So we're very resourceful and every single thing is always used. And then the other side of the job, which most people don't really think about, is admin and people management. Basically, you're doing all of that. I mean, like I was talking about the size of the crew, I have to manage that. I have to be in charge of all of those people. I have to deal with all the different temperaments and egos and personalities, both within my department and with actors and with directors. So you have to be really good at psychology and understanding people and admin and accountancy all of those things all of that comes before um the actual creative bit the actual creative bits the bit like the little bit that you do like you know you have an idea on the loo or something or you're just falling asleep and i think oh right that's what i'm gonna do the world has changed so much since you started and one of the things that seems so difficult now is looking back. There's been a lot of talk about young women who are actors and see whether they can really 
put themselves inside these complicated clothes that change the shape of their body? Should we be changing the shape of women's bodies? What do you think? If we're doing period costume, the corset, which changes, which supposedly changes the shape of the body, defines the silhouette of a period, and that's how we tell the period. It's not changing the shape of their bodies. It is a little bit. I mean, you know, you can cut a an inch or two off a waistline but I mean it's not detrimental and the people who have to wear it have to wear it for a few hours every day not not their entire life so it's crazy to me to think that that some companies are actually saying they'd ban corsets as if it would it would make things okay they, they should have a look at what an 18th century or 19th century dress would look like without a corset it would be a hot mess <laughs> I always feel being British like you, that there is something exceptional in English people and the way that they use their imagination to make things or do things. Am I just super proud of my country or is there something special here? Ooh, that is interesting. Do you know what I always feel when I've been abroad? As much as I love travel, I'm always happy to get back to the UK and London in particular because there is such a variety of people and individuals. And I think that's what we have. I think we here strive for individuality as opposed to conforming to the norm. That's my feeling. Um, I must talk to you about Derek Jarman because he's a sort of all-round genius. He's an artist, he's a filmmaker, costume designer, stage designer and um, gardener. He mentored you but that was after he gave you your big break on the film Caravaggio, 1986, starring Tilda Swinton. What was your relationship with Derek? What was it like? How, how was it working together? He was the most extraordinary human being. I mean, he was a great teacher. And I don't think he set out to be a teacher. He was just one of those people who was incredibly generous with his knowledge and his time. I think he liked young people. He was inspired and happy to be around young people. I mean, Caravaggio was most people's first film. It was Tilda Swinton's first film. It was my first film. Uh, several people on that film had never done, been on a film set, done anything like that before. And we just sort of made it up as we went along. And we were allowed, we were given the freedom to do that. When you're on set, can you always do that? Can you just tweak things how you want to and change things? Or mostly, do you have to follow what has been planned? Well, you have to follow what's been planned anyway, because there's a very strict schedule to adhere to normally. So things have to be ready by a certain time. But... Having said that, if something's not quite working, you can tweak it to an ex certain extent. You can, you, I have actually changed a costume, not completely. I've changed, like there was a, there was a costume once where the shoulders were too wide on an actor and we'd already shot on it and I'd watched the rushes and I thought, you know, we can't see him looking like that for the whole film. I'm going to change it and take them in. Nobody's noticed. I mean, I'm the only person that notices the scene where they're a bit bigger than any, all the others. So you can make little changes like that. You can change your mind in what somebody, what you planned somebody was going to wear in another scene later. If you think now that's not going to make sense, I'm going to change my mind then, provided you haven't already shot on it. I mean, it is always constantly evolving. And, and the thing is, when you start filming, when you start at the beginning of the film, you don't have all of the costumes ready for the whole film. You're doing them as you go along. You know, sometimes you're making the costume one day that's going to be on set the next day. Tell me about colour, because that seems to me to be such an important section of your work in, and your hair, perhaps, I should say, as it's now turned this wonderful bright orange colour. You seem to have conquered colour, as a lot of people can't do. And looking at this vibrant orange hair at the moment, I can see that it is important to you as well that you must feel colour. How do you work with the director to achieve the correct 
colour palette for each film. Do you think like that? Do you say the film is about X, so therefore the colour should be Y? Colour probably is the most important thing to me. I kind of think in terms of colour. So I can read a script and have a feeling about colour. I can have a feeling about colour for a character, which may or may not come into fruition because I might be reading the script not knowing who the actors are and then you meet an actor. You know, you might have a colour in your head for that character and you meet the actor, oh, that's not going to work. So I'll then move away from that. And I don't know, I don't know how, I just work with colour instinctively. It's just what appeals to me, what I like and what I feel is, inst is instinctively right. I sometimes, I just know what works and I know what colours work together. Sometimes I might want two colours to not work together deliberately or sometimes I want them to, but I'm always really very, very, very particular about the balance and the proportion of things like that. And I rarely use a fabric just straight out of the shop in the colour that it was made in. I'm always tweaking it. It's always not quite right for me. It's a bit of an obsession and I can't really explain it, but I think it, it always seems to work. And quite often I have to convince people, I have to convince directors that this is, I believe this is right, because a lot of people are really scared of colour including designers. A lot of people just will go for something sort of easy or bland because they're frightened of it. The way to deal with it is communication. And I have to communicate with a production designer and the set decorator to make sure that we're all going to work together and especially the cinematographer. Bland is not a word I would use in describing the um, colours that you choose to wear yourself or to put on screen. But there's also the question of how you can possibly do so much for one film. I don't know which of your films, so many of them, that actually in a single movie you've done so many different costumes. Do you know in, from your head which... The biggest. Mm. Probably the biggest ones. I mean, Gangs of New York was probably the first really big film I did. And there were thousands in that. I mean, it shot for a long time. I mean, it was about a year from when I started work on it, when my first meeting with Mark Scorsese and started doing preparation work. And then we shot the whole film in Rome at Cinecita Studios and it just kept going on and on and on. I mean, it did. It must have gone massively over budget because it just kept growing and growing and growing and we just needed more and more costumes. That was a pretty huge one. And we made most things. The film I've just finished working on, actually, Snow White, uh, which I can't really tell you much about, but I can tell you that we made every single costume, all of the extras, and all of the extras have more than one costume change. Before we go, I, I want to ask you about your personal style and your image. It's so striking. Of course, I'm looking at your hair. But um, what you wore on stage to um, collect your BAFTA was really wonderful. I love those wiggly trousers. How long did it take you to plan? And how did you choose what to wear and colour and how to dye your hair for this great moment which you so deserve? The minute you know you're going to have to get onto the stage or like if I have a nomination, the first thing that comes in my head is, oh no, I've got to think of something to wear. I've got to have an outfit. This particular case, this is interesting, the trousers came before I even knew I had a fellowship. So the story behind the trousers. A few years ago I was in New York and I actually chased a young woman down the street who was wearing a piece of knitwear that I really liked and I said, where, where's that from? Should I make it? I'm a textile worker, designer. And she said, I have a stall in a market at the weekend, come see me. So I went to see her, I bought the piece of knitwear 
and I got her to make me something else. And she said, oh, well, you know, she was very young. And she said, um, you know, I've got to work room, come and visit me sometime. I never did. I never made it. Then last year, in about October, she sent me an email saying, I'm making these, I'm developing this idea. I'm making these trousers that I think you'll like. I think they'd really suit you. If you like them, send me your measurements. I'll make them for you. That's what happened. So I had this extraordinary pair of trousers, which the minute I put on, I thought, I love them. I mean, she knew I'd like them. And she knew they'd look good on me. And I thought, now I've got to wait for an occasion to wear them. And when am I, when am I going to wear them? Sometime after that, I got the call. I thought, okay, this is where I'm starting. I'm starting with the trousers. And what would be really great would be to give a young unknown designer a bit of exposure. So I wore the trousers and I knew I needed the rest to go with it. And I designed the rest to go with it. I asked a simple question and it turns out that it tells us so much about you and your life. I think you've given us the most wonderful insight on your work, which is extraordinary and the only person in the world who has done so much. Thank you so much for talking about yourself. Thank you, Susie. It's been lovely. Sandy Powell, you're an outstanding and revered costume designer in the Western movie world. From Mary Poppins in 1964, the first film you ever saw, to winning the BAFTA Fellowship, you have become one of the most revered costume designers in the Western movie world. And it has been a road to success, from being taught to sew by your mother, to being recognised for your contribution to cinema as a costume designer. But it's not just about clothes. You have genuine power and real skill in telling the story and creating the characters. You are simply super califragilistic. XP Ali Douches. Creative Conversations with Susie Menkes is produced by Natasha Cowan, music by Jörg Zuber, graphics by Paul Wallace, and edited by Tim Thornton. To find my articles, visit susiemenkes.com and susiemenkes on Instagram. If you've enjoyed the podcast, then please do rate, review, subscribe, and tell your friends. You can find me on all the usual channels.